0: This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is November 15th. How are we doing? Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by... The wonderful Simon Bélanger and the now richer than a couple weeks ago, Simon Bélanger, because the index is up about 10% from the lows. So, you know, we're back, baby. <laughs> of course, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek. I'm just kidding. No victory laps allowed yet, but how you feeling?
1: I'm feeling good, but by the time people hear this, uh, you know, the markets might be down. And it's been so volatile one way or the other. So it's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> Let's just <laughs> say it, it's recorded a couple of days in advance, depending on what it's doing the day that you're listening to it.
0: Yeah, and you know, you may be a Bitcoin guy, but thank God you're not a shitcoin guy because you'd truly be wiped out at this point. We're going to talk about the scandal, the scam of all scams from Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. We're going to talk about that juicy story later in today's show. And that way for people who just don't care much about That then, you know, it's at the end, so we don't have to to talk about it. But, dude, oh man, you know, I love this documentary that has that is going to come out in the future. I already, I already, you know, this is right up my alley. I'm always so fascinated by these next level scams, how people can have the hubris and psychopathic tendencies to really pull this level of fraud off. And yeah. uh, I don't want to hint.
1: Yeah, I don't exactly. give away too much So <laughs> now we'll move on to some more positive news. So October CPI in the US came in lighter than expected. And that's really what's been sending the markets way, way up. So, you know, I'm going to ask you, so what planet do we live on where 7.7% CPI print sends the NASDAQ up 7%? It's pretty crazy, huh? Dude, on the day we up, live in fantasy yeah, land. Yeah, exactly. Here's the thing, right? Like, this is the
0: market short term in general, not only with macro prints like this, but also on a micro level with each company, right? Like, it doesn't matter what the fundamentals are on the day of the earnings release. It just matters in relation to if it came higher or lower than expectations. Yeah. Because the idea is that that is, you know, quote unquote, priced in what the expectations are. I don't necessarily agree with that, with the efficiency of the market on the short term. So yeah, what planet do we live on? I don't know. Not this one to answer your question.
1: Yeah, I can just see Powell too coming out in a week or two and just like hammering interest rate hikes again and then the markets will just revert. I could see that happening, maybe not, but just funny to see how the markets are reacting. And this is just why you DCA. Right,
0: this is why you dollar cost average. I just mentioned, you know, we're not taking victory laps, but the index is up ten percent from the lows, and no one rings a bell at the bottom. No one rings a bell and lets you know, hey, today's the day. And that's not to say, you know, the bottom is in the past. You know, shit can go really wrong. Don't get me wrong, but no one rings the bell at the bottom, and so you just keep dollar cost averaging. In the short term, I mean, this is just a blip in the radar for a long investment time horizon. So just keep sticking to the plan and buy depressed assets in bear markets. That's the dream, man.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like we referenced, the print, even though it was really high, came in lower than expected. So consensus was around 8%. So it came in at 7.7%. It was still up 0.4% on a sequential basis compared to September. So that's still you know, pretty high, just to keep in mind. So in my view, view there's still some big concerns here when you look at the various categories i'll give a few examples because i always find it interesting just to look at what's going really up fast what's not what could be declining now food was up 10.9 percent as a whole and 0.6 percent versus september so that's still very high and putting a lot of pressure on less fortunate segment of the population because a higher proportion of their income is actually going towards food Energy, another one that affects pretty much everyone, was up 17.6% year over year and 1.8% versus September. Gas was up 17.5%, although last year, you know, gas was definitely not as high. So keep that in mind may sound like a lot but it was still up 4% versus September. And the one there's a couple of items that were down one of the main ones that made the headlines but you can view the full report on the US government's website. Used vehicles continues its decline for the fourth straight month in a row. So that's good news for people looking to buy a car. Now, there's still a long way to go because Powell did say the week prior when they raised rates that the goal is still to go to two percent so we're still long ways there well in my view I think the biggest tell here will be if we start seeing a trend between now and the end of Q1 2023 the reason why I say end of Q1 2023 is because it will give us a good idea of you know if inflation is really starting to go down because inflation didn't really start to pick up rapidly until the fall of 2021. So we no longer have the base effects right now. But second, the Fed did its first 75 basis point increase in June of 2022. So it will have been more than six months since the first large interest rate increase. And we all know there's a lag effect between the interest rate hikes and the impact on the economy. So it'll be very interesting. I think Q1, 2023 will give us a really good idea what direction is going. This
0: is a good overview and gives you an idea of just. Where we've come from, that a 7.7% print doesn't send absolute alarm bells. To come back to your question, which planet are we on? No, I think this is a good overview persistent sequential growth on the food thing. I mean, when does that turn, right? Like, that's, I don't know. Like, who, I have no idea. No one really does.
1: No, no, I mean, probably, you know, I'm going to go on a wild guess and probably a resolution in the Russian-Ukrainian war that would probably go a long way to pull food prices down a bit. But again, I haven't been following that very closely. But in my view, there doesn't seem to be an end in sight, unfortunately. So, we'll see. I I really don't know when those food prices will start kind of leveling off a little bit, hopefully sooner rather than later because it does impact everyone. But even more so, like I said, those that are less fortunate and the lower income brackets. Man, I am a big
0: no-frills guy. And this is not like... Guy. inflation tougher times, Braden, yeah. up no frills. I'm a big fan of Loblaws is just what they do and especially their in-house brand, the President's Choice brand, but without the Loblaws type prices. So uh, I'm a no frills guy. Hey, hey, no frills, come sponsor the pod. Look at this. This is organic reach right here. You're living
1: in style. I go for the no-name brands, even cheaper.
0: (laughs) Dude, no-name brand has and no-frills, actually. They have the best commercials on TV. I find them to be quite clever. All right, let's talk about Home Depot. Speaking of going into retail locations, because Home Depot is the best smelling retail location of all time. Home Depot reported earnings this morning hot off the press. And Simone, this is hilarious because every time I tune into the call or just like read their IR, Ted Decker is probably the best CEO name for a home renovation retail model. Ted Decker it is absolutely perfect. Sales increased 5.6% year over year from the third quarter of last year. Ownings per share up 8.2%. So still hitting that high single digits number that you can kind of expect from this gigantic business. And same store sales growth of about 4.5%. So pretty decent, able to flex their pricing power. Nothing, Nothing crazy, but we're talking about tough comps. You know, we've been talking about a lot of tough comps, Home Depot, tough comps after the insane demand for home renovations and outdoor projects last year. You know, everyone was doing them. But two questions for you. Yeah. Have you been in Home Depot recently? And yep. is Ted Decker not the best CEO name for Home Depot ever?
1: I mean, yeah, it's a, it's it's a really good <laughs> name. And I've been I've been to Home Depot a couple of times. I was there yesterday and then a couple of weeks ago as I was getting the renovation material for my home studio. So oh, yeah, yeah, I've been yeah, I've been there recently, so I bought it all from Home Depot. So yeah, no, it's been still pretty busy. I mean I haven't seen really and I went during weekdays, and it seems to be pretty busy. A lot of the the pro construction, right? They do a big yeah. portion of Home Depot's revenue is actually the pro side. That's been a big growth driver for them. So, I mean, I'm not surprised by these numbers because it seems like the ITES definitely aligns with that.
0: Yeah. So you're building a little home studio for the podcast in the basement, yeah. right? How's that, yeah, how's that's that going? It. I've good. seen little sneak videos of the insulation's finished now, right?
1: Yeah, insulation's finished, so I think we should be finished in a couple weeks. And nice. I had a sponsor, a future sponsor of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, hey, help out with some soundproofing, some, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sonopan. So I'll probably put some pictures on Twitter when it's all done.
0: Yeah, yeah, those guys at Sonopan—they're nice guys, and they—I mean, you're gonna have a bunch of the stuff up in your home studio.
1: And and look, I'm like HD.
0: AF on the camera right now. So, you know, we're leveling up here to give you guys a bit of a look into our plans. We do plan on incorporating video for the podcast a little bit in the future, kind of leveling up our setup as well, just over time, you know, we're just we're just trying to continually get better especially on the pod here. All right, so just to round this out with Home Depot, here's some. I've included a screenshot from the new platform on Stratosphere. You can see all the KPIs really nicely with spark lines over time like on a long-term trend as well. And the one that sticks out for me is yeah, sure they have, you know, that comp same store sales growth, but look at the comp same store sales growth in the third quarter of 2020 20, and the first quarter of 2021, it was anywhere from 23% to 31%. So, you're seeing that really pulled forward. So, the fact that they're still hitting mid-single digits on same-store sales growth off the back of that is pretty impressive. And you're seeing them pass on the cost of inflation with that average ticket size trend up from about 68 to over $90 for each basket happening in the store. So, these are the types of metrics that we have built out on stratosphere.io and want it to be really obvious because this is the stuff we talk about on the podcast so much. So, it's really nice to see this in one place. But yeah, that average ticket size, that not only is very impressive from the business, but you can see them flexing on their pricing power over time.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And a little sneak preview, I'll be doing a dividend stock portfolio on the next episode. And I'll also post Mm. some more detailed info on Joint TCI. So that'll be coming out Monday. And one of the names is Home Depot, because I think it's a great dividend play. It allows you to get exposure to the construction market without the same kind of cyclicality that you'll see in some publicly listed US home builders, for example.
0: Right, like they're not going to be as macro affected and like government spending in infra dependent as well because you know yeah, there's exactly so
1: and in the states right you have 30-year mortgages so you have a lot of people that are kind of stuck in their homes because they have these three percent 30-year mortgage and they can't port those mortgages like they do in canada so people end up not moving because if they do they have to lock up for seven percent so what yep. do you do when you're not moving you're renovating your home and where do you get your materials from I'm just going to let you guess that. Lows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Yeah, so next name. I always like to keep an eye on this one just because I know there's a lot of people that invest in the marijuana market when it was a hot thing a couple of years ago. And Canopy is still one of the largest players in the space. Obviously, it's backed by Constellation Brands, which is pretty significant. So I, I always think it's a pretty good barometer to see how that industry is going. So revenues were. Down 10% year over year, but they made a point to highlight on their earnings release that it was up 7% on a sequential basis. So, of course, they want to highlight the good. There was more bad than good, but there were a few kind of interesting nuggets here. They had a net loss of 232 million. Their net cash position now sits at 1.14 billion, down 16%. That's really important to look at net cash position, especially when you have companies that are still losing a bunch of money, because that's some point when you run out of cash you have to do something so typically there's kind of two things right you issue more shares or you get debt so something to keep an eye on here they lost 135 million on a free cash flow basis which is 34 percent more than last year now there is some good news like i said the good news is they are continuing to cut costs they divested their canadian retail operation which should allow them to save all of it yeah, all of like, it. Like Tokyo
0: smoke and stuff, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. It sounds like it. I mean, my when I read it, it looked like it was the whole thing. They yeah. said, I mean, if they're saving seventy to hundred million a year in SGNA, I would think it's all of it personally. So, it will I think they, if I remember correctly, in the Tokyo smoke deal, they sold it like at a huge loss, like for yeah. pennies on the dollar. So, what they bought, but again, I think it just goes to show that you know the model at least for Ontario I don't know how well was done in other provinces I know Quebec has their own kind of thing going on there with the provincial system but I know in Ontario is a bit of a crapshoot right they were issuing licenses and it didn't really matter where they were at first it was very tough to get a license and then they became widely available and i know you saw that i know i saw that in ottawa you literally had two cannabis stores right next to each other yeah and they're buying the same stuff they offer the same stuff because they have to buy it directly from the ontario cannabis store so it's not like they have you know a special product completely different. So I think they realized that probably a good move to just cut your losses here. And then the other good spot. The one that's unrelated to cannabis, and it's kind of weird that it's in this business. But it's BioSteel, so I I'm always sure. always
0: forget they have a majority yeah. stake in BioSteel.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think I don't know. I think they flat out bought it all. I'm not sure, but I think it's just a majority it's one of their stake segments. Here. Yeah,
0: seventy-two percent stake.
1: oh 72 Okay.
0: Oh, with an agreed path to hundred percent ownership.
1: Okay, there you go. So this I'm sure one, it's just
0: vesting over yeah. time. Maybe it's complete now, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, and this one the revenues increase essentially three hundred percent to thirty million year over year. So it's growing quite quickly. Obviously they have tons of you know, deals with I think hockey players and other mm-hmm. types of sports. So it's funny that the biggest growth segment is not related to <laughs> marijuana or <and> cannabis.
0: <laughs> funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah no, you know what? Biosteel is good. I like it. And they're always handing it out everywhere around Toronto to try to get some more awareness. So whatever they're doing marketing-wise, clearly it's working. Now, speaking of, of Toronto and what is not working, and you were just talking about it, is the absolute concentration of cannabis retail locations. And dude, they would open them thinking... Hey, we'll have some like Apple, like really modern feel to the retail concept. And that's going to be such a differentiator until they all did the exact same thing at the exact same time. So something had to give clearly. And it was not a model that was going to work with that much Mm. competition all at once so yeah they had to take the l on this one
1: yeah and the one thing i'll say is i kind of feel bad for some of the companies or even i think some were independent too right they opened yeah. stores i read somewhere that apparently they couldn't even have access to see if there were other stores planning to open in the same area oh. so they were yeah they didn't even have access to that data so i think what it ended up next thing you know you're
0: like both your neighbors are, are like weed retailers yeah that's brutal pretty
1: much yeah so anyways just my two cents on that so it's still kind of work in progress i think for for this space but you know one day they might be profitable one day all right one let's day. talk about
0: berkshire hathaway's 13f's came out what yesterday yeah. <laughs> and berkshire hathaway bought about four billion dollars worth of taiwan semiconductor aka tsmc aka ticker tsm so when i say tsmc or tsm it's the same thing it's taiwan Semiconductor. It is now a 1.4% position for Berkshire stock holdings, which doesn't sound like that material, but I think now it's like a top 10 name. I mean, you look at Apple, right? It's like 45% of their stock portfolio, but they clearly see value in these beaten up semiconductor names like you have and clearly value in TSM. So I like it. I mean, hey, this is one of the most critically important businesses on the planet today. And there are so many reasons avoid it right it's like unsexy hard to convince your portfolio manager to buy it when the tensions geopolitically between china and taiwan seem just so uncertain and rule one is don't lose money and people are like well if if something goes wrong down there i lose all my money on tsm but i mean i get that perspective it's sure it's probably overblown but look the buff dog Or more likely Ted and Todd, given the position size. Yeah. Yeah. Think the price is right on TSMC. I could see semis and TSM being something they keep adding to personally from here. That's been a recurring theme. Like, you know, they keep adding to these oil and gas names quarter after quarter after quarter. And I wanted to use this as a two kind of lessons to think about and something for, for me to think about too, as well is. One you gotta go against the grain that's how guys like Buffett and, and the people at Berkshire and you know some of these amazing results types investors over like forty plus year periods have done is really go against the grain. You know they're value investors at heart, but they're buying good companies or great companies, but at good prices or or potentially great prices so That's one thing to think about. But number two is a reminder to not follow anyone into trades, whether it's Buffett, whether it's me, whether it's you, finance, TikTok bros on the internet. You know, this is interesting signal, sure, and and maybe a good way to get idea generation to look at something like TSM because hey, look, the GOAT himself and Berkshire Hathaway buys the stock. But you can't borrow someone else's conviction. You gotta build that conviction yourself. And so this buy happened in the third quarter because it's on their 13F filing that just came out. But let's just say hypothetically, this trade happened six months ago or a year ago. You follow the buff dog into TSMC and, you know, because Buffett bought it, the stock falls, you know, 33% like it has, and you're like, why? You haven't built any conviction up into the business. You don't know what their competitive position is. You know, the narrative is going to be driven by the stock price. So, what do you do? Incoming capitulation, right? Like, that's what's going to happen. And so, that's just two interesting things to think about here because a stock can go from really unloved to really loved as soon as Berkshire owns it, right? And so, that kind of thinking, I think, is a quick way to lose money. And by the way, capitulation is just a term I just used. It's a fancy term and you're going to hear it a lot in bear markets and you've probably heard it a lot over the last six months, which is just referring to a situation where investors sell their stock eventually after getting grinded down lower and lower. So they're tested lower and lower, extended period of time of stock price declines until they finally just lose complete faith in the story. That's what capitulation means.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm... I was not surprised on one hand to see the move, but I was on the other. Obviously, I know Taiwan Semiconductor pretty well, just because I've kind of gone down the the semiconductor rabbit hole. I'm still learning about the whole thing. Almost finished the Chip Wars book that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Granted, I've been sidetracked a little bit because I was listening to almost anything I could on the whole FTX debacle. But, <laughs> it's too juicy not to, man. Oh, man, it's addictive. But I mean... It's a wonderful business. Like there is no way around it. I mean, they yeah. it's pretty amazing what type of mode they've built themselves because you need so much capital investment, the capex required to it's be able to unbelievable. compete. I don't think people really realize. Like we've talked about Brookfield and Intel, you know, the foundry they're they're looking to build in the US. That's just the tip of the iceberg here. Like, that's actually not that much money when you compare it to the types of capital expenditures that companies like TSMC is doing. And that barrier that it puts against competitors is immense and I don't think a lot of people realize that that's why they're able to pay a dividend but still reinvest you know in the company because right now they produce 90% of all the most advanced chips in the world they don't produce 90% of you know the semiconductors in the world but the most advanced one they essentially have a monopoly on that but again the biggest risk here is the whole China you know, question whether at some point they do invade Taiwan. So obviously, that's a dark cloud hanging over that. If you do invest in that, you almost have to have part of your outcome. You decide what percentage you want to put on that. It could potentially go to zero because of a, you know, an invasion. Yeah, I don't think, you know, I personally think even if there was an invasion, China would probably try to protect those assets. But again, it's a huge risk. And even if they did, then who's to say how they would use the assets from TSMC. So that's the elephant in the room for them.
0: Am I insane on my thinking? Am I off on something here? Because the performance just doesn't seem to represent my thinking here. But would hedging it with something like Intel make sense? Or are those just going to perform in a basket like crap if if anything happens anyways. That's what it seems to look like correlation-wise in, in yeah. performance.
1: Yeah. I mean, you'd almost have... Uh, the, the issue is Intel's not a pure foundry play, That's right? right? That's the yeah. issue. It's an integrated play and the semiconductor space has really seen kind of the direction they're going is you have like kind of the chip designers and then you have the producers. Obviously, there's companies like asml involve and other types of companies as well but it's like one or the other that's why you see an amd that's why amd divested i think 20 years ago their foundry capacities they really focus on chip design that's what nvidia does and intel has kind of kept the older model, so they still design their chips but they also produce them so i don't know going forward whether they'll kind of go towards one way or another or if they're kind of stick to that model but that model has not worked all that well, at least in the last decade.
0: It blows my mind. I almost feel like the market is insane for this because they price extreme geopolitical risk on something like t s m c Meanwhile, they make all of apples <laughs> chips, yeah. yeah, and you know the market doesn't seem to care about that or price any of that risk in like if something happens. You know, they ain't making as many iPhones or any, you know, and over a potentially extended period of time, as well as we're at a complete standstill in the way we live our lives from a consumer Which perspective. Which comes to
1: the point, though, Like that's a great point, especially now when you think like Berkshire has a lot of exposure to that, to both. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, maybe Buffett knows something. I guess
0: it's it's almost like one of those things where like, if that happens, we have bigger... Like things to worry about. Like It would be such a cascading, contagion effect to the entire economy if something happens with TSM.
1: Yeah. That's a fair point. Yeah.
0: You know what I mean? It's like, oh no, my stock portfolio went to zero because the sun imploded. And it's like, yeah, well, the sun imploded. Who cares about your stock portfolio? I mean, it's not as extreme as that, but you could kind of make the argument.
1: The last thing I'll say, like TSMC, I mean... It has to be one of the most important companies in the world. Like I agree wholeheartedly. Five. I think it's way up there personally.
0: I agree wholeheartedly that it is one of the most important businesses on the planet today. Full stop.
1: It's not valued like it. Yeah.
0: Same with ASML because they're both choke points in the ecosystem.
1: Anyways, we'll go on to the next name because we'll have a really long episode. If we <laughs> on this. We're going to be talking about Sam Bankman Freed until midnight one here is i think a name that a lot of our listeners actually own so algonquin Mm. power it wasn't spoiler alert it was not a good earnings release for them so i'll go over some of the main points here i'll give my thoughts and i know we have some thoughts too revenues were up 26 percent to 666 million net loss of 195 million which was six times worse than last year management said that their quarter was challenged they said there's pressure because of renewable energy project delays and higher interest rates on that note interest expense was up 45% versus last year that's really massive obviously it's not surprising if you look at their balance sheet because they've added 1.5 billion in debt since last year and then you factor in some higher interest rates now the other reason why the market did not like this earnings release is they reduced their 2022 adjusted earnings per share guidance by 9% if we take the mid-range. It also said that it was evaluating its longer-term targets and financial expectations. They did not provide an update on that, but they said they would at their investor date in early 2023. Another thing hanging over the company is the Kentucky Power Acquisition. It sounds like it's going forward, but at a slightly lower price than originally agreed on, which is good for Algonquin. but they would still be assuming $1.2 billion worth of additional debt assuming the transaction goes through so that would put some more pressure on the debt here especially looking at the interest expense that's already you know going up much higher and you know that's straight up cash so that's not good to see the markets obviously did not like it the stock is down close to 30 percent since the earnings release last week i don't know this name overly well but i you know i looked at a few people who follow this name closely looked at their financials their earnings release as well and i don't it sounds like you know they're could potentially be a dividend cut here you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of alta gas years ago so alta gas was kind of in the same a similar situation where they did an acquisition where it wasn't really well planned they added too much debt they had to cut the dividend and i ended up buying the stock after the dividend got cut and it was a great investment for me but people who bought it before it was cut ended up being a terrible investment for them so I'm not going to say for sure it's going to be cut, but there's a lot of pressure that's going to be put on that dividend just on the stuff I talked about here.
0: Yeah, I have some quick comments on this because it is an industry I used to work in with renewable power and, and utilities. And so, I'll just say my my piece here and then we'll, we'll talk about Brookfield quickly and then get into the juicy story of FTX. Yeah. The reality here is like, I'm pretty glad I sniffed this one out last year. I mean, our comments on a podcast we did, it was two things. We did a deep dive on it when we was like, the one takeaway we had was like, yeah, you get growth and a dividend and that's all good. But I sold it somewhere around 19 bucks. I actually owned it for a hot second there just to collect some yield while I was unsure of what to do. They issued, I believe the number was 600 million in stock. And then I
1: immediately sprinted for the
0: exit. Do you remember this?
1: Yeah, I remember that. You were even saying that they seem to finance a lot with equity over debt compared to other utilities. But now it sounds like they've switched around and just started issuing debt. (laughs) Well,
0: they should have been doing that with rates so cheap. Look, I mean, it was such an easy one to just say, yeah, it's a safe utility. And because that's a pretty safe thing to say (laughs) is that it's a safe utility. But I was really on this one and confused about how they were funding this dividend. This in Enbridge, I mean, I could do all the accounting till the cows come home and I still would never understand the freaking dividend. And so, it never made sense to me. The financing was so weird. I remember I was like, how and why are they diluting so heavily via issuing stock instead of just Tapping into the ESG craze with green bonds or something. I used to work with this. I used to help our finance team show why we're awesome on issuing really, really cheap ESG friendly, in quotes, green bonds. Like we're talking about rates that are so low, like no one else in the world can achieve this low of financing. So, this debt was so cheap and it was even cheaper before. It does feel a little oversold. I'll come around here and say it feels very oversold here for utility. I mean, not often you have a utility get cut in half like this, but I don't understand the decisions they've made, like from a CFO role perspective. I just included a screenshot from Stratosphere. Look at the share count. This does not look like a utility. No, it does not. This looks like some cash burning software name. Yeah, That share count over the last 10 years does not look like utility. It's very head-scratching. They basically were doing anything and everything to pay this dividend.
1: I guess it, it's fine if you're diluting as long as your earnings are increasing as fast or faster, right? But now I think Hopefully they're... faster. Yeah, but now they're starting to see that not being the case. And I'll just add one last thing. It's yielding over 9% right now. <laughs> Holy crap. But that's, you know, that's also potentially... So that's, a cut is really priced in here. Yeah, people are thinking potentially a price cut. I would just say like, you know, if someone's interested in this, do your homework and don't be surprised if a price price cut happens. Personally, I would not touch this. Yeah, sorry, a dividend cut. Personally, I would not touch this until management does that kind of longer term projection in early 2023. I'd rather be a bit late to the party than early here. I agree. I think that that's probably makes sense. I do think it's oversold.
0: So, I mean, I, I we were just talking about, you know, against the grain. I think it's a little oversold. That doesn't mean I like the stock at, like at all, but I, I do think that it's
1: oversold. So Or buy it and know that a dividend could, could be a possibility, right?
0: If anything, you hope for it. I mean – Yeah, pretty right? much, yeah. <laughs> it's like another Canadian name, WSP. Dude, I think the stock would double if they if – we could cut the dividend. I'm exaggerating. It won't. But like they pay this dividend that hasn't grown at all since they started it and they're – Achieving really high returns on capital. It's like, dude, just cut this stupid dividend. No one owns the stock for 20 cents on a $200 share stock. Like, It makes no sense. All right, let's quickly do BAM because, you know, it's the Canadian Investor Podcast. We talk about BAM and BAM's doing BAM things. So I'll do this quick with three quick metrics year over year. I'm going to talk about funds from operation, total assets under management, and fee bearing capital. Funds from operation was up four percent to almost one and a half billion dollars for the quarter. That long-term trend is really nice from an FFO perspective, but you know, no crazy gains here. Total assets under management and fee-bearing capital are what is really exciting about this business. Total assets under management up to seven hundred sixty-two billion, up fifteen percent year over year. It is not very far off that you and I will be celebrating 1 trillion in AUM for Brookfield as a whole. Fee-bearing capital up 17%. So this is this is money that they're managing for alts that is collecting management fees on. <laughs> like management fees are like the best business, really. And no one is able to do the things that they are at scale from both an owner investor and operator. They have that unique like little trifecta going for them. I'm excited for the spinoff and so is bullish Bruce Flatt as per usual, seeing some pretty really high expectations for how this business is going to compound over time. So, you know, the man has done nothing but excellence for over 20 years now. So I'm not going to discredit anything he says at this point.
1: No, no. I mean, yeah, Brookfield just doing Brookfield things. And, you know, another spoiler alert is there may be a Brookfield name or two in that dividend portfolio. In dividend portfolio? Okay. So, yeah, hold yeah. on. Let's talk about
0: that really quick. So, you are putting on a dividend portfolio because, you know, you and I put yeah. our portfolios every month on jointtci.com for the Patreon. It's $9 Canadian per month. And so, you get to see, we update it on the first of every month. And, You are putting a dividend portfolio because we don't all play the same game. And a lot of people who are listening to this are looking for income portfolios, like, you know, in retirement or very close to retirement. And so you're basically doing the one that you kind of ish set up for your parents? Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, similar. Basically what I would probably do for myself if I were to retire tomorrow. Okay. So yeah, something where I wouldn't try to rely on dividends as much for the income because you can always make a case, right, for a retirement portfolio that, you know, look at total returns and then you just kind of trim whether you use a 4% rule or kind of use a variable rule depending. There's different ways to go at it. But the issue with that I've always found is, you know, with Which stock do you trim Mm -hmm. if you end up trimming, right? You always get into that difficult situation. And I personally think for my, you know, I know it may not bring the best total returns, but for me, the best approach would be you build mostly a dividend portfolio and then you get the majority of your income from that. And of course, I have some additional safeguards, I would say, especially with yields being so high, so I don't wanna ruin it for the next episode and the joint TCI subscribers, but I'll talk, you know, on the podcast, I'll go over the portfolio, but there's just going to be a bit more details on the joint TCI. That's it.
0: Yeah. I like that. I like that. I'm excited to see what you come up with. And so that's going to be at jointtci.com and you're going to update it quarterly, you said, right? Quarterly?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Quarterly is, is the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, it was a pretty long exercise, <laughs> longer than yeah. I expected. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm not surprised. Well, I thank you for putting it together and the people who really could use that will thank you for sure too. So go ahead and do that join tci.com check it out. All right, let's talk about oh yeah. <laughs> the shit show of all shit shows. Yeah. In case you have been living under a rock, there is and you're going to go into all the players who are this, but the 5 second summary is FTX what was it the largest
1: Exchange or Coinbase? Second largest. Buying Coinbase? Uh, second largest after Binance worldwide. I believe Which are both if ahead you look, of Coinbase? I think Coinbase is the largest in the US. Don't quote me on that. But Binance worldwide, yeah, uh, it's the largest. Okay, interesting. So, gigantic cryptocurrency exchange,
0: FTX, has gone from being like throwing people lifelines. Like you and I were talking about like how just somehow, you, you know, everyone who's in trouble... He just invents money and like throws people lifelines to bankruptcy in a matter of like 24 hours. It all unfolded on Twitter.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And actually, now that you say it, I think you might be right. I think Coinbase might be the second largest because I watched an interview with Brian Armstrong, who's the CEO of Coinbase, after the whole follow-up was happening. And when he was talking about the revenues and then the revenues that was being claimed by FTX, it sounds like Coinbase was larger. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, okay. I, they're the do big it. dogs
0: regardless, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not a small player. Let's just say that. So obviously, this is going to take some time to go over all of this. I'll try to make it as clear and just go on the assumption that not everyone is aware of exactly what happened. So first of all, I'll go over who is involved here, the main players, because I'll be referring a lot to these during my explanation. First of all, the main person here, Sam Bankman Freed, I'll refer to him as SBF. He was the dude. CEO my buddy it. called he him is. scam, bank run, fraud, SBF, I heard that. I, I, <laughs> I was laughing so hard when he said that. So SBF was the CEO of FTX and also controlled 90% of Alameda Research. Alameda Research was a crypto-focused hedge fund run by SBF. Well, he wasn't the CEO, but it was, let's just say, as there's things that have been coming out that was like his girlfriend on and off, I would say. But he still controlled a 90% interest in it. So let's just say he was mostly running it. So Alameda Research was the rise to fame of SBF because it did so well and he was able to open FTX in May of 2019 and that was really an accomplishment because there were already prominent players in the space so being able to get a an exchange when there's already established players like Binance, like Coinbase obviously, ShakePay in Canada, there's some smaller players located in different countries and I'll talk a little bit about ShakePay at the end too. They're not involved with this just to, just to say they said they have no ties to FTX so if anyone was wondering, they've already issued that and actually I'll just say it now, ShakePay has been very they've always encouraged people to get cold storage. And cold storage is basically you control your cryptocurrency. No one else, this kind of stuff that we're going to talk about cannot happen if you have it in cold storage. Shake Bay is actually a big proponent of that.
0: Yeah, thanks for calling that out. Because I mean, obviously they sponsor the show and, and a lot of people had been sponsoring, a lot of like people in this space, like talking about finance stuff had been sponsored by FTX in the past. And, you know, it's people now are dunking on them being like, you know, these people shouldn't have been promoting this. And then they're like, dude, you had your money in there. You had no idea any of this was happening. Like it's so easy to speak in the past, but thank you for calling that out. Shake has not only issued a statement saying, you know, it's all good, but Hey, this market is changing drastically. And so cold storage has been something they talk about regardless. Yeah. I think that's a good call.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So obviously FTX was one of the largest worldwide exchanges when its downfall started happening last week. Now, another big player here is Changpeng Zhao, also known as CZ. He's the CEO of Binance, and Binance is the largest crypto exchange in the world. And Coindesk, which I'll talk about, is a crypto-focused news website. Now, although the story unfolded mostly last week, it actually started back in the spring. So I'm sure people can recall we talked about it a little bit the fall of Terra Luna and Celsius which caused some contagion in the crypto space one of the casualties was 3 arrow capital which was a crypto hedge fund now surprisingly at the time Alameda Research the hedge fund run by Sam Bankman-Fried seemed to have escaped the contagion so much so that we saw FTX And Sam Bankman Freed obviously come to the rescue in air quotes of other crypto forms. A prominent one was BlockFi, which received a 250 million credit facility from FTX back in June. BlockFi is also a crypto and exchange and lending platform. Now, SBF at the time was held as a crypto savior. I think he was compared to like JP Morgan in some sort bailing out the industry players. Obviously, I mean, I assumed at the time that FTX was well-funded because like how the hell are they doing this if they don't have any money, right? I think everyone assumed that. I had assumed because I knew how lean they were
0: doing this. Like they had reached that level of success in volume with like 30 employees, like total. And so I just thought that they were making like exorbitant amount of profit. And we're just extremely well capitalized, especially because I think he bought like six hundred million dollars worth of Robinhood stock.
1: Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think they own five percent of Robinhood. Right, right. So I'm just like, I'm oh like, man, I don't, I don't know, what I'm talking
0: about. So I'm like, this guy just has <laughs> bank. Like this guy's banked, man. Like Sam Bankman, holy freed. <laughs> he he pull, he pulled back the curtain, and it yeah. sounds too good to be Oof. true. It probably is.
1: Yeah, exactly. And now in reality, at the time, Alameda was probably having substantial liquidity issues in the background during the spring as well. We're still, you know, details are still coming out. So I think, you know, one, you know, a few weeks, a month, a couple months down the line, I think we'll just kind of learn more and get confirmation of what was actually happening. But so far, this is what is has come out. And it looks like SBF was secretly using FTX funds to bail out Alameda research, which With whatever funds ftx had available including customer deposits which is a big no-no and would constitute fraud if you're using customer deposit in an exchange this is not a bank where you know in canada their us they follow a fractional reserve system but there's some very strong regulation they can only invest in certain things this is not the case and an exchange should not be doing that and i don't know if you saw the report is apparently he had a backdoor installed into FTX to not trigger any alarms from accounting and also auditors when sh- funds were being transferred to Alameda Research. Nothing can surprise me at this point.
0: And now, <laughs> I don't know if this is a part of your notes here, but now it's allegedly been hacked and like all the well, money's gone. It's like, well, yeah. is the hacker Sam bankman fried who ran off from their sketchy palace in the Bahamas?
1: Yeah, and that's the case. So there was, I think, six, it's not in my notes, but I know what you're referencing. I think it was like 600 million worth of assets. And that's the thing with the blockchain, right? Everything's transparent so you can actually you can't see a centralized institution like FTX what they actually have on the books necessarily the cash that they might have and stuff like that but as soon as you start using the blockchain this stuff can be audited and you know Twitter started pointing out like oh there's actually large amount of funds that are being transferred from FTX to these other wallets so i think there's still we're still not sure whether it's a hack or it's an inside job but those but-
0: wallets are still like is anonymized you don't know who, where that is. You just know that it's some address.
1: Yeah, for the most part, it depends if it went to another exchange and if that exchange has KYC. So KYC is know your customer. And that's one of the issues here when the learning lessons that I'll talk about is one of the big issues is a lot of these exchange are not located in the US or Canada, they're located in areas that are either not regulated or not very well regulated. So they can decide to not put things like know your customers, for example, just because they don't have to do it.
0: Right. Like there's just, it's the wild west, but like the wilder west and it's happening right now and it's unfolding in front of our eyes. A lot of things are going to change. And one thing I'll add here is like, it's Just so interesting watching this all unfold and it's basically just the community like figuring this all out. You know, it's not big institutions. It's not the government figuring this. out. It's literally just individuals on the internet figuring this all out and uncovering the story. It's a fascinating time we live in right now.
1: Yeah. And when it really started, so, you know, using customer deposits, if you have fractional reserve, you know, it's, I guess, it's fine. And I say that loosely until, you know, people start withdrawing massively from your institution. So what started happening last week is Coindesk, the online publication that I mentioned that focuses on cryptocurrency news, in a piece said that Alameda Research had a large portion of its asset as FTT. FTT is essentially just a token that's used by the FTX exchange that provides customers with perks and equity like advantage if you'd like. So it kind of provides them with a portion of the revenues. It did have value, I guess, or was a demand for that but it's very illiquid so it's not very easy to trade and any amount of large trade would definitely make the price tank because there's not a lot of demand for it and the other thing they notice on the balance sheet is that there was a lot of loans that Alameda had that were actually backed by these FTT tokens. The figures I saw is that Alameda Research had approximately $3.7 billion worth of FTT tokens when Coindesk came out with the article. Part of that was actually that I believe was unlocked and there was another couple billions of locked tokens. So a substantial portion of Alameda's balance sheet was actually tied to the financial wellness of FTX. And after finding that out, CZ, who's the CEO of Binance, basically said on Twitter, which initiated the whole thing, that they would be liquidating $2 billion worth of these FTT tokens because Binance had received that along with some stable coins, which just followed the US dollar in terms of a cash out when they were early investors in FTX. So they received that when they decided to exit their position. And the fact that CZ announced that, essentially started a bank run on FTX because then people were starting to freak out that had their money there and then withdrawal in large numbers starting happening. So that's what a bank run is, is when a bank has fractional reserve and then pretty much all the depositors think that the bank's going to fail and they start withdrawing all at the same time because they don't have full reserves. At some point, they have to stop withdrawals.
0: CZ engineered a bank run on them. A fierce competitor, this guy is. Yeah. I mean, he sniffed it out, right? And he, he sniffed it out. He knew they were, they were going to get screwed by this. And the guy is ruthless, and it happened. Now, Lynn Alden on Twitter said something very funny to kind of explain this FTT collapse, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. Imagine. Lynn is great, by the way. Here
0: yeah. it is. Imagine McDonald's makes its own money and calls them clown bucks. That's, that's funny, by the way. It's clever. Yeah. He calls them clown bucks, keeps most of it and sells some of it on the market. McDonald's then uses their remaining clown bucks as collateral for actual loans. And then people remember clown bucks aren't real. So it's kind of like, you know, engineering that bank around and people are like, wait, I got to sell these clown bucks. And then Starbucks comes and then the market sells the clown bucks they were holding while reminding the market that the clown bucks aren't really a thing. McDonald's balance sheet is trashed and their clown bucks are wiped out. Anyways, that's what happened in Cryptoland this week.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so now, basically, now the end of this story is that This all created a hole of 8 to 10 billion are the latest figures that I've seen on FTX balance sheet, basically, you know, making them unable to fulfill all the deposits that were with them. And on Friday, FTX, FTX FTX.US, because FTX was the global company, FTX.US was a separate company, and Alameda, along with I think 140-ish other companies that were tied to FTX filed for Chapter 11 Bank. In the US. So that's kind of this end here. Obviously, there's a lot of people that were impacted. I hope those who had money on FTX. I'm sure there might be some that are listening to this podcast right now that may have had money on FTX. I do hope that you see it. I know what it's like. I actually lost money. I think it was in 2014, 2015, My I had money on there was the early days of crypto, had like half a Bitcoin and the crypto exchange ended up being a bit of a scam as well. So I learned my lesson. That's why I use cold storage now.
0: Man, we'll go on to your final thoughts here. And then I want to ask you some big existential questions on the future of this.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I have like some main thoughts here. And obviously, you know, I'm still learning. There's info coming out every day. Well... First, I think this shows the needs for clear regulation for crypto exchanges at the very least a framework to show proof of reserve. So making sure the exchange actually has one for one the assets that its users or customers are buying on the exchange, not, you know. If I bought one Bitcoin in your exchange, you should have one Bitcoin backing it, not 10 Ethereums, one Bitcoin. If I have 10 Ethereum, don't have one Bitcoin backing it. You should have 10 Ethereum, one for one. And that was one of the big issues with FTX because they were essentially saying, oh, no, no, it's fine. You know, we're well capitalized and all of that. But what ended up being is they didn't have the same assets that the users had. So in their mind, they're like, oh, no, we have sufficient capital. But the problem is they didn't have the right capital. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, dude, and the capital was FTT. Basically.
0: And then as soon as as soon as these things they go ahead the and pause withdrawals, that's the end right. right there. That's, that's the, the end, end. exactly.
1: And Brian Armstrong, who's a CEO of Coinbase, has been saying for a while that there should be better regulation, especially in the U.S., because the fact is that a company like Coinbase is following regulation meant more for traditional financial institution. It makes things a lot more complicated. And Brian Armstrong has been very steadfast on that. In his view, the complicated regulatory space that they are following But it makes it very unattractive for a lot of these exchanges to open in the US have operations in the US. So that's why they go for offshore areas like the Bahamas, for example, where FTX was incorporated. And you kind of have these issues. And I saw an interview from Kevin O'Leary. And he said institutional investors will probably sit on the sidelines until there is clear regulation in the US. And by the way, O'Leary had invested in FTX. Oh, yeah, he was one of the investors.
0: He's down bad. Tom Brady's down bad. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, you what have, a
0: 12 months for Tom Brady. Oh, man.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Well, we have also Sequoia Capital that was in there, Ontario Teachers, Pension Plan, SoftBank, Oof. of course, SoftBank, anything that's trash, they'll invest in. BlackRock, <laughs> <gig>. <laughs> BlackRock and private equity. And what I saw, there were, I think, at least 44 major investors in FTX. And it just goes to show that even these like professional institutions can make mistakes, right? And, and they got
0: conned, man. And even these gigantic, most legit firms like Sequoia, you know, you can just destroy your reputation in seconds by making these kinds of mistakes, as well as how cringy Sequoia was. Apparently Sam Bankman-Fried closed them allegedly while playing a game of League of Legends while on Zoom with them.
1: Yes, I heard that. Can't make this shit up, man. And for those, we probably have teachers in Ontario, I would say, look, it's not great, but I would not worry about that. The teacher's pension plan has over $200 in assets under management, and this represents half of half a percent so it's it's just peanuts it's nothing but clearly you know it just shows that even these big pension plans can make mistakes and there's probably going to be more things coming out in the next weeks months and years about this whole situation so something just to keep an eye on also i've mentioned it before in my view if you own more than a thousand dollars worth of cryptocurrencies, I would recommend getting cold storage. Why a thousand? Because the devices are a hundred to two hundred dollars each. So you know it may not make that much sense to you know buy a device like a Ledger, for example, and pay hundred and fifty bucks when you only have two hundred dollars worth of crypto. So you have to kind of keep that in mind. I don't think crypto personally is dead by any means, but it will probably set it back a few years at the very least. That's My opinion here, and you have to keep in mind. And I think the mainstream media will probably kind of get these things convoluted. But you know, whether you look at Celsius, Mount Gox, FTX, Three Arrows Capital, BlockFi, these are all centralized entities. And the irony of all of this is these entities were actually ironic, man. Yeah, because they were behaving like traditional finance operation in crypto, but without regulation. Yeah. And let's not, you know, forget of what happened in 2008 when there is weak or a lack of regulation in certain areas for financial institution. You know, we saw what happened in 2008. So I do take offense of people saying this is a crypto issue because, you know, if there's no regulation or lack thereof or very weak regulation, you know, we saw what can happen in traditional financial markets, the exact same thing. You know, the actual networks like the Bitcoin network, even Ethereum, They haven't missed a beat because these are full, you know, Bitcoin is fully decentralized. The network has kept working. People have their cryptos, currencies in cold storage or, you know, exchanges that are well funded. Sometimes we we don't know which one it is. But, you know, I still have my Bitcoin. I'm fine. No issues with that. So you have to keep in mind, you know, it's not... I don't think personally it's a crypto issue. It's more of a regulation. And a lot of our politicians, whether it's US or Canada, have been kind of waiting to put some regulation in place. And this is what happened because you have these centralized organizations who take advantage of it.
0: It needs to hit the fan before anyone really cares, right? <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, exactly. I think that's what this is. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's like. There's no CEO of Bitcoin, right? No, exactly. It's just a machine that it's a decentralized system and software that is just one source of truth. And I think that the technology is amazing and you and I both think that there's a real need for it, but the, all this shit happened because of bad actors and other coins, What's the point of having, like, how many uh, on Coindesk listed coins are there? Like 3,000?
1: Yeah. If you go CoinGecko is usually there.
0: Like, this is just so much garbage, man. Like, And I think this is why people who like Bitcoin are just like, stop calling it crypto. Because crypto is where all the source of these scumbags come from. There's no CEO of Bitcoin, right?
1: Yeah. There's 13,000. 255 listed on CoinGecko. 13,000? Yeah. Yeah.
0: See, that's 12,999 of them are zeros. That's the way I think about it. And so you have one perfect solution and then all these bad actors trying to get on top of it. And so, dude, have you seen that? We'll wrap this up quick, but have you seen that he's been tweeting one letter at a time? And yeah, I saw that. Do you know why he's doing that? <laughs> no. What? So okay, so this got uncovered like a couple hours ago, and it's working. What he's doing is working. So he's tweeting a letter, just a tweet. It doesn't matter what he tweets. He's tweeting at the exact same time he has written a script to delete tweets. And since it's net net, the bots to detect his tweet activity on Twitter, he's bypassing it, and there's no. It's not picking up that he's deleting a tweet, and so he oh. found a loophole with the leading tweets, because this guy's probably going to go to jail for life.
1: Well, either. I mean, let's be honest. I'm going to... Good question for you. If you're SBF, I mean, what are you most afraid of? Jail or potential people that... Yeah. Because a they lot didn't do KYC yeah. for a lot of large or wealthy yeah. people. That was one of the things... And the right cartels, out.
0: I'm sure, that have been...
1: Loving I don't the know, idea <laughs> of Bitcoin. All I'm saying is that there's probably some really scary people that are owed money by SBF and FTX. Oof. Yeah, I don't know. I mean...
0: His life is materially over, in my opinion. I mean, he's either no, going to... It
1: should be. I mean, he destroyed the lives of probably I. I mean, yeah. I heard a podcast, which I we don't talk a lot about, you know, other podcasts often on here. But I do encourage anyone. It's called The Breakdown by NLW. And he was actually working with FTX as in the marketing department. Yep. And it's a one-hour listen. I fully encourage anyone to listen to it because you kind of feel for the guy because he kind of gives you a play-by-play of what was happening on their Slack and the black wall that was happening between a few of the executives, including SBF and the rest of the FTX employees. And as things were unfolding, how he was kind of realizing that shit was going down. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a point of view I've never I haven't heard anywhere else. So, I encourage everyone to, to listen to that one.
0: Six months ago on a podcast, Sam Bankman-Fried admitted that FTX is a Ponzi. On a podcast. Yeah, yeah. He's that. like, Yeah, <laughs> it's a Ponzi. And then Sequoia gives him money, you know, like unbelievable. Unbelievable. This guy is either going to be dead, like you said, or in jail for like I mean, hopefully, right? Like this Madoff level. What did Madoff get? Like five lifetimes of prison? Yeah. Or something I like don't that.
1: Know. Yeah. I mean he died in jail, deep, right? Like yeah. Yeah. And one of the things too, last thing I'll probably add is some of the FTX employees that were in other countries where they have poor banking systems were actually getting paid and using FTX to deposit their paycheck. So, they (laughs) lost their job and they lost all their money, these people. That's crazy. I know
0: a guy who runs a podcast that was his podcast is being sponsored by FTX. And he said that he had like $30,000 that he got paid and he just didn't move any of it. And he just like was like, "Oh, I'll Aww. get to it." And he's like, "Ah, oh, shit, it's all gone." I'm like, okay, well, you're an idiot.
1: No, it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah.
0: Ah, oh, man, I feel I feel really bad for people who got rug pulled by this. I do. This yeah, sucks. Me too. This is really terrible. I, this sucks a lot. This can't happen anymore. This guy's a complete scumbag, liar, and should go to jail for the rest of his life.
1: Even just the stuff he was saying while it was going down, and just like, oh, you, like he was flat out lying on Twitter. That's what's crazy.
0: Yeah, like as the company, like he's like, we are completely fine. And then. Mentioned that they're doing bankruptcy proceedings like within a what, like four-hour window?
1: Yeah. It was like, it's just there. It he has to be like, obviously, he's a sociopath. Like, he's yeah, trying yeah. To say totally had, socio. Yeah. He's trying to say that he did know and stuff like that. Like, come on. You're installing back doors in your system so you can move funds. Of course, you know. Yeah.
0: Apparently, his private jet like just flew to Argentina or something. This guy's just trying to run at this point. Like...
1: Yeah, probably going to countries that don't have extradition from the U.S. Yeah.
0: Go try to survive from here on out in some mountain village in the top of Patagonia where no one knows who you are. Russia will take All you. All you'll have to do is <laughs> shave that stupid haircut of like the, you know, yeah. raccoon nest that lives on top of his head. Maybe you'll end up in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Who knows at this point? But time's oh, ticking. Yeah. He's yeah. probably too busy playing League of Legends right now. That's right. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. This has been a long one. Good stuff. We appreciate everyone for listening. I can't wait for the documentary. You know, I'm going to binge that. Thanks for listening. We have two major things happening. Simone joined TCI.com is putting up that dividend portfolio, you know, the old income portfolio, because we're not all playing the same game. It's important to recognize that, you know, I might not be playing the same game. Simone's not playing the same game as our parents, who's not playing the same game as someone who's just nearing retirement, you know. It goes on and on and on. So I think that, that that's good. That's at joinTCI.com. It's $9 Canadian per month and helps us support the show so we can do this for a really long time. And we are exactly two weeks away out November 29th, Stratsford.io new platform. It is so sexy. It is so sexy. Can't wait to show you it. That is November 29th, go on Strassford.io. Final reminder, ah, you know, I'm going to plug it next week too. But if you sign up for any paid plan today, you get grandfathered in at today's price. You're not going to pay more when we increase the prices substantially in two weeks. So you got about a week left on Starsphere.io. Take an additional 15% off with code TCI. That's going to lock you in for like more than 50% off long term of what the actual price of of the platform is going to cost starting November 29th. So go ahead and do that. Maybe last call. Probably last call. Go ahead and do that. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Bye-bye.
1: The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.